0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the spring of 1983, a massive snowmelt sent runoff racing down the Colorado River toward the Glen Canyon Dam. Worried federal officials desperately scrambled to avoid a worst-case scenario, one of the most dramatic dam failures in history. In the midst of this crisis, a trio of river guides secretly launched a small hand-built wooden boat, a dory named the Emerald Mile, into the Colorado, just below the dam's base. The captain of the dory, Kenton Grua, aimed to use the flood as a hydraulic slingshot that would hurl him and his two companions through two hundred seventy seven miles of some of the most ferocious white water in North America, and if everything went as planned, catapult the Emerald Mile into legend as the fastest boat ever propelled through the heart of the Grand Canyon. Today on the program we'll revisit our conversation with Kevin Fedarko about his book, The Emerald Mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. Kevin Fedarka will be in Logan next week to give a Convocations talk on Saturday, August 29th, 9.30 in the morning in the D. Glenn Smith Spectrum on the Utah State University campus. It's a part of USU's annual Common Literature Experience, which in turn is a part of the Connections Experience for uh, students. You can find out more at usu.edu slash connections. Now, I'll just tell you that Kevin Fedarka lives in northern New Mexico, and uh, works as a part-time river guide, or has worked there in the Grand Canyon National Park. Uh, his works, is uh, written works, have appeared for Outside Esquire, National Geographic, Adventure, and other publications. Kevin Fedarko joins me for the hour. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. Oh, How good, are morning. You? good morning. Good uh, morning. So, a very interesting book, pulse pounding, and some very interesting history as well. Uh, as I understand it, you. You learned about this, this uh, legendary, now legendary trip, fastest trip through the uh, Grand Canyon while you were running river.
1: That's right. Um, That's where I first heard about this story. In the summer of uh, 2003, I uh, apprenticed myself to uh, one of the commercial river outfitters that conducts uh, expeditions down the Colorado through the Grand Canyon. That was the first of what would be five summers that I spent Working uh, as a baggage boatman in the canyon, and you know, one of the things that you quickly come to learn um, when you become part of the subculture of river guiding and whitewater running uh, inside the canyon is that you know there's kind of a a fabric of um, oral history that is um, woven together by the uh, guides who who run the trips through the canyon, and um, those guides are. Um, Jacks of all trades. Um, They have multiple skill sets that range from uh, being able to row through uh, some extremely large and challenging whitewater to cooking and setting up camp and breaking down camp and fixing things that break. But really, what they do best, I think, is um, they sit around, uh, particularly at night, and they tell stories to their passengers about the river, about the canyon, um, about the people who have formed the history of that place. And uh, one of the one of the most popular stories that's told a story that um, is so deeply wo- woven into that fabric that it's almost impossible. Uh, to take a river trip down the canyon and not hear the story is, is the tale of the, um, the events that descended on that place during the summer of 1983. So, yeah, that's how I first heard about it.
0: you write, it I think it's in your acknowledgments somewhere you, you list a lot of the books that you've referred to. And, of course, your book is now added to uh, the history of the, uh, the river and, and the canyon. But at one point you say that if you really want to know, you've got to, you've got to go there.
1: You do. Um, The Grand Canyon is probably the most iconic landscape feature in North America. Um, It's a place that's known to almost everyone. It's impossible to even show a picture of the Grand Canyon to very young school school children and not have them recognize it. And an enormous number of us go there each year. 4.5 million of us travel to the South Rim. Um, to park in the parking lot and gaze into that abyss from the top. But the thing about it is, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to look into it. Um, it's a, um, It offers a kind of display of colors and a pageantry of light and rock that's really like nothing else uh, on the surface of the planet. But there is, beneath those rims, a kind of a hidden world um, that's, so deep inside, more than a mile beneath the rims themselves, that you can only see tiny tiny segments of it from the surface. And um, that world, in addition to being hidden, is incredibly vibrant and um, I think probably the most direct and visceral way of not only experiencing the canyon, but coming to sort of understand uh, both its beauty and its power. And, you know, the key that unlocks all of that is the Colorado River, um, the agent that carved the canyon in the first place, um, but which during the course of its journey through the Grand Canyon, which is a 277-mile journey that starts at a place called Lee's Ferry uh, up at the head of the canyon in northern Arizona and concludes at um, a geologic formation known as the Grand Wash Cliffs, which define the uh, threshold between the end of the Grand Canyon and the entryway to Lake Mead. Um, and during the course of that journey, um, the river has created a kind of almost Edenic riparian paradise um, inside a world of sun blasted rock. Um, that is uh... almost devoid portions of it particularly on the cliffs are almost devoid of uh... vegetation and life uh... you have this incredibly vibrant uh... strip of 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 green um, that uh... winds sinuously through the bottom of the canyon and is filled with the sound of moving water um, animals and birds that are moving through it and it's just a very very unique place and uh... Uh, it also affords the opportunity to 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 realize that the, um, you know, what's even more powerful than looking down into the canyon from above is staring up at it from below.
0: Hmm. I wonder if you could uh, set the scene of uh, late June of 1983. It's an El Nino year. A uh, huge snow melt and, and runoff, it, and in fact, Bureau of Reclamation is worried about the Glen Canyon Dam. And there's 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 al- already been some, uh, at least one fatality, right? And and the the river has been closed. Uh, maybe you could set the scene uh, beyond that as uh, late June when when these three people put this uh, this dory into the water.
1: Well, it was an extraordinary um, spring that year, 1983. Meteorologists will tell you that it was one of the most remarkable years we've ever seen. Thanks to a series of meteorological anomalies that were triggered uh, several months earlier on the far end of the Pacific Ocean, um, the, co- the western coast of the United States and uh, the southern Rockies were inundated by a series of superstorms which succeeded in building the snowpack, in the case of the California Sierra, up to record proportions. And uh, in the case of the Southern Rockies, the snowpack wasn't um, the highest that we've ever seen. But what made it really unique and unusual was that um, the temperatures remained very, very cold until late in the spring. Um, and then right around May 28th, uh, the temperatures shot into the high 80s, and all of that snow came out of the Southern Rockies in one vast, wet rush. Um, there was so much water coming down actually. I mean, many of your listeners, um, I'm assuming are in Salt Lake City and some of them will remember that uh in May of that year there was so much flood water coming out of the canyons uh into the Salt Lake Valley that the uh the water actually had to be diverted um, down a series of streets in the middle of Salt Lake City and Salt Lake was lined with uh, those streets were lined with sandbags, more than a million sandbags and Salt Lake was kind of turned into a, uh, a desert version of Venice with um, commuters walking across wooden footbridges to get to work and kayakers paddling through the current. Um, that water was not headed into the Colorado River system, but uh, the rest of the runoff uh, that was coming off of the Southern Rockies, uh, the, the larger portion of it was. And um, all of that water, when it reached um, Lake Powell, Uh, the head of Lake Powell, the reservoir that backs up behind the Glen Canyon Dam, Um, the water came down so fast that it really took the men who were in charge of managing uh, the Glen Canyon Dam, employees of the Bureau of Reclamation, almost completely by surprise. And here there's another interesting Salt Lake City connection because there was a team of weather forecasters in Salt Lake City that year. Um, salt Lake City hosts one of several um, river forecast centers, and um, the Colorado River Basin Forecast Center is located just out near the airport in salt lake city and uh, I During the course of my research, I spoke to a number of um, a number of the men who uh, worked in that office during that year, and they explained to me that The system they have, when compared to what they have today, was relatively primitive. And um, one of the handicaps that they faced was that they did not have enough snow telemetry gauges and um, precipitation devices placed in the Upper Colorado River Basin in order to enable them to accurately predict and model the runoff that year, which is really the reason why the the men at the Glen Canyon Dam were unable to um, anticipate fully uh, how much water was headed toward them. And in a nutshell, um, when they finally realized this, which was uh, during the first week in June, the surface of Lake Powell was clawing its way up the side of the Glen Canyon Dam at a rate almost twice as fast as they were capable of releasing water through the dam itself. Mm. And... um, you can kind of imagine what it must have felt like at that time to be to be sitting in the control room at the base of the Glen Canyon Dam and realizing that you had a rising lake the uh the tools that were available to you to uh to stem that onrush were very limited and then um what really took a a crisis and catapulted it into the category of a full-blown emergency was the fact that um, when they opened up their spillway tunnels on either side of the dam, which was basically the Glen Canyon Dam's insurance policy, um, massive 40-foot diameter tunnels that are designed to to shunt water around the dam. um, A series of malfunctions occurred deep inside the tunnels And the lining, the concrete lining of those tunnels began dismantling as a result of turbulence deep inside the tunnels. Hmm. And uh, so this was an extraordinary year. It was a crisis that in many ways had no precedent in the history of American hydroelectric engineering. And the team of officials who were tasked with the responsibility of saving the dam we um, were primarily focused on how to get water through and around the dam and prevent the spillway gates and ultimately the parapet of the dam itself from being overtopped but what they did in the process was they sent as much water as they possibly could fire hosing into uh... the canyon directly below the dam and to give you an idea of how much water they were sending into the canyon that summer uh, during the previous twenty years um... the flow of the colorado river through the grand canyon rarely varied between 16,000 cubic feet per second and 30,000 cubic feet per second. And um, starting in late June of 1983, the engineers in charge of the Glen Canyon Dam began sending 93,000 cubic feet per second of water uh, into the the Grand Canyon. So those were the conditions that really laid down um, the foundation for what is the, the uh, the core narrative, the story at the center of this book, uh, the story of this speed run that was then conducted uh, by a group of river guides. Uh,
0: so what would have happened uh, if the dam had failed?
1: That's a great question, and it's a question that the answer to it's really, um, in 1983, would have depended upon who you asked. Um, There were several dozen commercial and private river trips inside the Grand Canyon uh, when this artificial flood was triggered by the releases coming out of the dam. And uh, this was during an era before cell phone technology and social media. um, The boatmen who were uh, responsible for getting those boats down the river had almost no access to information. And there was a lot of wild speculation about what was happening far upstream. And the fear was that the dam um, might have or might um, be in the process of failing catastrophically and collapsing. Um, Had that occurred... Uh, the events would have been rather apocalyptic. The Bureau of Reclamation has actually conducted a study of what might have happened um, if the Glen Canyon Dam had failed and um, the uh, The wall of water that would have rushed through the Grand Canyon uh, in places would have been five or six hundred feet high um, uh, before it finally leveled out across the surface of Lake Mead and it would have taken out every piece of infrastructure inside the Grand Canyon now. If you had asked that question, however, of the engineers who were in charge of the dam and who were really the people who best understood that structure, they would have kind of scoffed. Um, The dam itself was never in any danger of collapsing or cracking or failing catastrophically. There was a possibility, however, a remote possibility, that the surface of the reservoir, Lake Powell, might rise fast enough to overtop the parapet of the dam. And had that occurred, you would have had a waterfall in, ec- in excess of 500 feet high, plunging over the parapet of the dam and um, uh, hammering down on and ultimately destroying the power plant at the base of the dam. And in the worst case scenario, uh, which it's important to emphasize, was the um, the least likely scenario of all. But there was a remote possibility, theoretically, that um, the um, the water inside of these two spillway tunnels. Keep in mind, these are two giant tunnels that are running through the cliffs of Navajo sandstone on either side of the dam, on the west and the east sides of the dam. And um, as a result of the turbulence that I talked about earlier, the water inside those tunnels was excavating, tearing out the concrete lining inside the tunnels, and it was when it when it penetrated through the concrete lining, it then began excavating the sandstone uh, behind the concrete. And there was a remote possibility that perhaps um, that excavation process might establish a connection, a hydrostatic connection, if you will, between the bottom of Lake Powell and one or both spillway tunnels. And had that occurred, you would have had something called an uncontrolled release, which is, in essence, the uh, entire contents of Lake Powell, some 9 trillion gallons of water, uh, evacuating around the dam. And so the dam itself may not have failed, um, but the lake may have done an end run around the dam and thereby rushed into the canyon and uh, made its way uh, down the Colorado River, uh, taking out probably almost every single dam uh, and river divergent structure, with the exception of Hoover Dam, uh, between northern Arizona
0: and the Sea of Cortez. Extraordinary. Um, and uh, this, of course, provided an opportunity for some intrepid uh, river runners, some would say reckless. <laughs> we'll get into uh, telling their story, and I'll have you tell me about their captain, uh, Kenton Grua, and the... Uh, The Emerald Mile, which is a wooden dory, and and why they were doing this in in an age where you could have, uh, you know, rubber rafts and such. Um, And as you describe it, this was a gesture of poetry and defiance. We'll talk a bit about that following a brief break. We're talking with Kevin Fedarko. He's author of the new book, The Emerald Mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. And uh, you're welcome to join us. We'd love to hear your river running story and uh, tell us why why you get on the river what's the attraction for you we'll uh, ask what the attraction was for these uh, river runners in this extraordinary time 1983 late spring you can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com upraxis at gmail.com or on our utah public radio facebook page Uh, so back after a break what is a subject that you are passionate about
2: what do you know more about than most Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Classical music is meant to be played and heard in concert. I'm Fred Child. Today's concert scene is bursting with creativity and vitality and talent. Join me for two hours of highlights from recent concerts from across the country and around the world on the next Performance Today from APM. Tuesday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're revisiting a conversation from 2013 with Kevin Fedarko, author of The Emerald Mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. We're hearing this uh, exciting story again today uh, on the occasion of Kevin Fedarko coming to Logan. He's going to give the Convocations talk on Saturday, August 29th, as a part of USU's annual Common Literature Experience. Pick a book, have everybody read it. It's part of the Connections uh, class as well. More information at usu.edu slash connections. Kevin Fedarko's talk, which is free and open to the public, will be on Saturday, August 29th, 9.30 a.m. in the D. Glenn Smith Spectrum on the USU uh, campus. So it's uh, this. Uh, you describe him as a wild-haired a veteran of the River Ke- Kent and Grua. His two companions. They uh, they put this wooden dory into the water about eleven p.m. on the the night of uh, June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty three. And uh, you describe this, uh, Kevin Fedarko, as a gesture of poetry and defiance. What? Why are they doing this?
1: Well, um, the answer to the defiance part of the question. Um, to sort of fully appreciate it you need to you need to sort of take a step back and think a little bit about what uh, had happened to the Colorado River so prior to the 1930s, the Colorado was really the wildest and least controlled river um, in the southwest. Um, it was a river that was saturated with silt. Um, was an exceptionally mercurial river, which is to say that because it was driven primarily by snow melt, you know, it, could, um, it could flow at almost a trickle for much of the year and then, um, you know, literally without warning, in the space of several days, it could uh, leap from 3,000 cubic feet per second to 30,000 cubic feet per second and then to 100,000 CFS in the space of... 72 hours or just a couple of days. And so the Colorado River was synonymous with um, extremely violent, uncontrollable floods, particularly uh, within the lower basin, an area that now comprises one of the um, richest agricultural bed- breadbaskets that we have in the country, uh, the Imperial Valley. And so um, this was a river that was, um, um, that was viewed largely as a natural menace until the 1930s when um, the United States Bureau of Reclamation uh, began constructing what ultimately would become a series of very impressive hydroelectric dams up and down the entire length of that river, starting with Hoover Dam, uh, which many people believe to have been the greatest dam ever built. And uh, by the 1970s, the Colorado had been transformed from um, the wildest river in the west to the most controlled river in the west. Um, It was a river that uh, was jacketed and uh, whose energy and kinetics were harnessed and bottled and used to serve the the needs of human beings uh, in the form of light and power and heat and other forms of energy in cities across the southwest. Now, there's a community of um, of boatmen who live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, um, who um, were inspired to be there in the first place, and uh, are energized by tales of what that river was like um, before it was controlled by the dams, and um, who are intoxicated by the um, the magic of uh, whitewater, uh, and for whom free-flowing rivers serve as a larger metaphor um, for. Much of what is um, fulfilling and inspiring about life itself. Now, this sounds a bit hokey, but uh, <laughs> if you spend much time on a river like the Colorado, particularly in a world like the bottom of the Grand Canyon where you're cut off from everything else, um, it actually makes quite a bit of sense. And so this is kind of the setup for 1983, because if you sort of take all of that into account, then you kind of understand and can appreciate the fact that when the uh, runoff of 1983 came rushing down out of the mountains and took the Bureau of Reclamation by surprise and resulted in a series of decisions that created an artificial flood inside the canyon, uh, a flood whose dimensions had not been witnessed in um, more than a quarter century. You you realize that, um, that that moment presented a rather unique opportunity in the minds of the uh, boatmen who live and work at the bottom of the canyon, um, because uh, for the span of a few weeks, it would be possible to uh, witness and merge with and participate in a, a river that uh, bore a um, visceral resemblance to the ancestral Colorado River, a majestic and wild and free-flowing and also um, fearsome and savagely violent river that was no longer under human control. And this was the idea um, that, was, that was so electrifying, um, in particular for one man, a... Um, a boatman by the name of Kenton Grua, who um, was kind of both larger than life and unusually small in stature. Um, Kenton Grua grew up in Salt Lake City until his parents moved to uh, Vernal in, um, uh, when he was 12 years old. And by the time he was 19, he had made his way down the Colorado and was inside the Grand Canyon, working first as a motorboat river guide, and then uh, Two years after that, he transferred it over to the only company on the Colorado inside the Grand Canyon that at the time was uh, conducting commercial river expeditions exclusively in a particular type of boat, a very small wooden boat known as a dory. And um, dories are, without question, the most graceful and beautiful of all the boats that ply the river at the bottom of the canyon. And um, they also require the... Greatest amount of dexterity and skill to handle, particularly inside the giant hydraulics of the biggest rapids, uh, because they are exceptionally delicate and they're also very, very tippy. And so, Kenton Grove was obsessed with dories. Um, he worked for this company that specialized in rowing these boats through the river. And um, when the uh, as the water began to rise in uh, June of 1983, he he began to realize that. Um, if, if he took his dory, he had a little dory by the name of the Emerald Mile, and if he placed that dory into the head of the river below the, the Glen Canyon Dam at the crest of this surge that was coming out of the dam, it might be possible to use that flood as a kind of hydraulic slingshot, if you will, that would propel himself and two of his friends and the boat all the way through the canyon, that's 277 miles from Lee's Ferry to the Grand Wash Cliffs, um, and hurdle this little dory and these three men not only down the length of the canyon, but into the history books as the fastest boat ever to traverse the length of the Grand Canyon. And his hope was that not only would they break the Grand Canyon speed record, but they would smash it so decisively by virtue of undertaking this enterprise under such unusual conditions, <clears throat> that the bar would be set so high that um, it might never again be broken. And therefore, the achievement of the Emerald Mile would not simply be one in a long list of speed records, but um, the speed record that might last for all time. That was the uh, seductive idea that um, propelled this venture. and. Um, Sent these three men on the night of June 25th, an hour before midnight, hurtling into the into the darkness at the head of the canyon.
3: No,
0: with the conditions. With the conditions the way they were, uh, they might easily have died. Might they?
1: That was a very distinct possibility, particularly because, unbeknownst to these three men, um, they put this boat. By the way. I failed to mention that they put this boat onto the river illegally they had applied for a permit from the National Park Service and once were summarily denied um, primarily because there were uh, there was a whole host of um, of river expeditions inside the canyon who were um, attempting with various degrees of success to deal with this enormous water that was fire hosing through the canyon many of the rapids as a result of the high water actually washed out but at a few very significant choke points. Things went completely haywire, um, particularly at a very savage rapid known as Crystal, which is 98 miles downstream from Lee's Ferry. And um, unbeknownst to Kenton Grua and his two companions, 12 hours prior to their launch, the um, uh, Crystal had begun uh, flipping giant 37-foot motor rigs. These are the largest boats inside the Grand Canyon. And Crystal had begun flipping these boats upside down and Literally tearing them to pieces uh, in one case, um, the worst case of all a thirty uh, seven foot motor rig had been torn to pieces. Uh, some twenty people had been flung into the river and washed up to four miles downstream and one of these one of these people, a gentleman named William Wirt, who was a commercial passenger from Colorado, had died and so um, uh, there was a very distinct possibility that something similar might happen to Gru and his two companions, particularly because, unlike any other expedition on the time uh, it, it, on the river at the time, these men were not only rowing during the day but they were also rowing at night. The only way to really establish a speed record was to row continuously. And so when they launched, they brought with them a car battery, a set of cables that connected that battery to a powerful spotlight known as a Q-beam. And their intention was for each man to row for about 20 minutes, as hard as he possibly could until he was about to drop from exhaustion, at which point he would then turn the oars over to his companion. And in this way, these three men would rotate around the decks of this little dory all night long and all day long, rowing continuously um, along both the calm stretches of the river and directly through all of the big rapids without stopping to scout a single one of them uh, until they reached the end of the canyon and hopefully broke the speed
0: record. Hmm. Um, and so they, uh, and I think at a certain point you got park rangers looking for you, right?
1: They did. Um, the, the Park Service was well aware of the fact that they were on the river. Um, they had uh, um, been tipped off um, uh, just a few hours after Grua and his companions launched. And um, there was actually a park ranger who now lives in Salt Lake City, a gentleman by the name of John Thomas. Um, and John Thomas's assignment on June 26th was, uh, he was dropped into the canyon by helicopter and stationed alongside Crystal Rapids, um, which was the place where most of the big accidents and the one fatality had occurred the day before. And uh, John Thomas's responsibility that day was to uh, put a halt to every expedition coming down the river and force all commercial passengers to get out of their boats and walk around Crystal. Um, it was also his duty to explain to the boatmen who were about to navigate that rapid um, just how dangerous it was, and um, to to lay out for them a series of moves that would hopefully result in them uh, entering the only safety channel available to skirting around, which was what was known as a, a, an explosion wave. Um, this is a hydraulic jump at the center of the rapid that was 30 feet from trough to crest. Those are dimensions that are normally found only in the open ocean, and. Um, So the process of stopping and talking to John Thomas and allowing your passengers to walk around the rapid was a mandatory part of the program that day. And um, Kenton Grua and his two companions not only were completely unaware of what was going on at Crystal, but had they known, they probably would have ignored that requirement anyhow. And uh, they rode straight past John Thomas, witnessed the run, Um, was forced to submit a report to his superiors on the South Rim, and that set in motion a chain of events that ultimately resulted in Grua being hauled into federal court uh, after the run was over on the South Rim of the canyon. So a big part of the story is the National Park Service, and their tracking and monitoring of this illegal speed run and their feelings about it.
0: Yeah, that was an interesting part of the, the story, that the the park superintendent was livid, <laughs> and he wanted to make an example. And that's uh, near the end of your book, The, the Trial. It actually goes to trial. Uh, we'll take a brief break here, and uh, when we come back, we'll have more of this uh, fascinating story. The Emerald Mile is the uh, name of the book, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. Three river runners took advantage of extraordinary circumstances in 1983, huge runoff, and and we're able to experience the Colorado River, 277 miles of it through the Grand Canyon. Uh, maybe something like uh, the, the way the river was before it became dammed and, and such. I mean, that was part of, their, part of their goal. More with uh, Kevin Fedarko following the break.
1: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout the state. Hey, I'm Candy Palmer. He's the biggest name in celebrity blogging, and now he's taking his own place in the spotlight. Next time on Q, Perez Hilton will talk about his turn as Danny Tanner in the satirical stage show, Full House the Musical. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International.
2: Tuesday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams. We're revisiting our conversation with Kevin Fedarko. We're talking about his exciting book, The Emerald Mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of Grand Canyon. We're doing this today uh, ahead of Kevin Fedarko's visit to Logan. He's going to give a convocations address on Saturday, August 29th. That address is 9.30 in the morning on Saturday, August 29th in the D. Glenn Smith Spectrum on the USU campus. And it's free and open to the public. This is a part of USU's annual Common Literature Experience. More information at usu.edu connections. Uh, this is also part of USU's 2015 Year of Water initiative. And you can find out more on that uh, at our website, upr.org. The Emerald Mile is the book. It's the uh, epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. It's not only the uh, story of that uh, legendary ride, but also history of the river and the canyon. There's a lot about John Wesley Powell in this book. Very interesting. And uh, it's uh, it's a very good read. Kevin Fedarko, by the way, uh, his book appears on the Utah Public Radio book list. A while back, we uh, compiled a book list, and uh, you can find that at upr.org. The Emerald Mile appears on that book list. Uh, So, Kevin Fodarko, um, what were the biggest obstacles? Was it that this very dangerous stretch of the river called the crystal that these three and this uh, this small wooden dory had to navigate?
1: Well... I mean that's a good question, Tom. I I, I think Crystal Rapid uh, at Mile Ninety Eight was certainly one of the most formidable obstacles that um, the Emerald Mile had to confront uh, during the speed run. There were a couple of other rapids that were uh, that are always challenging and that. Um, probably uh, were exacerbated, uh, whose power was exacerbated by the flood. Um, the rapid that everybody who uh, speaks of is, is, a, is a rapid called Lava, Lava Falls, which is at mile 178, and um, that was another big challenge. But you know, I'd have to say in answer to your question that um, probably the biggest challenge they confronted and this, I think, the fact that they were able to do so successfully is kind of a testament to um, the skill and the knowledge that they kind of that they had acquired um, during the um, the years that they had spent uh, working in the canyon as river guides. But keep in mind that these are three men who are um, they're undertaking a speed run down a 277-mile uh, river um, under the light of a full moon. Uh, at the bottom of the Grand Canyon uh, over the course of one full day and two nights. And that's the interesting thing. The calculus that they performed before they um, staged their launch on the night of June 25th told them that if they wanted to have any chance of confronting and hopefully surmounting the worst stretch of rapids, They wanted to be able to do that during the daylight. And that meant that they would have to launch in the middle of the night, row through the following day, and then undertake a second night journey through the canyon. And, um, you know, people who... um, who know the bottom of the canyon? River guides who have worked down there will tell you that um, it's one thing to handle the white water during the day, but almost no one gets out on the river at night, um, even by the light of a full moon. At the bottom of a canyon that's more than a mile deep, there are very long, significant stretches of river uh, that are cast in complete darkness. And it was their ability to rely on a set of um, a set of sensory tools. Um, that extended beyond eyesight, that I think really enabled them to to, p- to pull that off successfully. Um, if you if you row a boat, particularly a wooden boat, there's an awful lot of information that the river transmits to you through the blades and the oars, um, through the, the hull of the boat itself. Um, you can uh, your ears can tell you an awful lot, um, and then there's a, there's a there's a there's a set of instincts that come into play after you have spent um, 10 or 15 years on the river where you kind of of just um, allow your mind and your body to sort of merge with the flow of the river. And um, that may sound a little bit goofy, but um, if you are rowing through pitch blackness um, and you can't see a thing, uh, that actually comes into play in a very significant way. And so I think this was one of the biggest obstacles they confronted and... um, uh, is one of the things that renders the achievement that they pulled off so impressive.
0: We do have an email. By the way, you can email us uh, with uh, your question or comment on River Running or this particular book. Kevin Fedarko of The Emerald Mile uh, is the author in the book. Uh, this is from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. Uh, I should say you can email us, as Steve did, at upraxis at gmail.com, at gmail.com. You can uh, join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Here's uh, Steve's comment. My layman's impression was that rising river water overflows rocks and river bottoms that create rapids and thus calms down white water and makes it easier to traverse. Evidently, this is not the case, or at least not so in the conditions your guest is describing, which seem to uh, demonstrate the opposite dynamic. Instead of calming the rapids down, the rising water is intensifying them and making them even more fierce than ever. Was I wrong about white water and rising water levels, or was the 1983 snowmelt runoff into the Colorado a special case?
1: Yeah, what a what a great point Steve raises, um, and he is absolutely right. The um, you know, in in many cases, as the river uh, as the river level rose to ninety-three thousand cubic feet per second in late June of eighty-three, many of the rapids there are about one hundred and sixty three, one hundred and sixty named rapids at the bottom of the canyon, and many of those rapids simply washed out. Um, they were transformed from um, rock studded um, um, pockets of of whitewater and chaos into um shoots of very very fast moving water uh but i at a, at a, at a small but very significant um, set of choke points along the river uh the opposite set of dynamics obtained under the right conditions um, and some of this has to do with the constriction uh that is created uh as a as the walls of the of the canyon narrow at the top of a rapid, uh under the right conditions certain pockets of white water, instead of calming down, getting washed out or disappearing altogether, um, become um, far more violent. And this is what happened at Crystal. Uh to a lesser extent it's what happened at Lava Falls and um, uh, as i mentioned earlier the explosion wave that crystal was 30 feet high from trough to crest um, so so this was another thing that this that the, that the crew of the emerald mile had to deal with it was a a changing set of conditions that rendered the river that they had come to know during the 15 to 20 years that they had been working on the river prior to 1983 um, completely unknowable in some ways this was a whole new river that they confronted in which they were trying to understand and unlock in their minds um, at night and um, uh... and the other thing i should mention very quickly is that the speed of the water increased very very dramatically and so in even in cases where the rapids were washing out the calculus that you had to perform in order to time your moves correctly uh, was fundamentally changed um, it was necessary to anticipate um, making moves Far upstream and far in advance of what you would normally do, um, and so the um, the calibrations and the um, the sort of internal map that river guides carry inside of their heads about how they move through the river, move from pockets of safety um, one to another, avoid eddies, keep in the main wave train, etc. Um, these calculations were um, entirely rewritten by virtue of the speed of the
0: river. We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, so very briefly on this, but um, I'm wondering... And you write extensively about John Wesley Powell, 1869, and uh, you'll have to go to the book to, to read that very, very fascinating, vivid description of John Wesley Powell, the uh, one-armed, uh, very slight fellow. In fact, there, there are some comparisons that could be made, I guess, between him and, and Kenton and Grua. 17 major canyons, 500 separate rapids that his expedition had to, uh, had to traverse. This was totally unknown. And I, I wonder if people like Kenton Grua and every river runner at some point, they must have John Wesley Powell in, in their minds.
1: Oh, Tom, you're absolutely right. I mean, not only do they carry John Wesley Powell in their minds, but they also carry him in their ammo cans. Um, every river guide uh, has a um, a, uh, a little metal box, um, an ammo can that you can the sort of thing thing that you can purchase in any army surplus store around the country. And these are the boxes that are used to carry one's personal effects on the river, largely because they are. Uh, waterproof and almost completely indestructible and can be lashed to the decks of a boat. And uh, it's hard to find a guide who is not carrying um, the story of John Wesley Powell inside his ammo can or her ammo can. I should say some of the finest guides on the river are women. Um, And um, not only do the river guides... um, Read and absorb and steep themselves in the story of John Wesley Powell, but they also take those books out at night and read them to their passengers. And I think the reason that Powell um, continues to uh, occupy such a significant stature, despite the fact that he was only about five and a half feet tall, in the minds of uh, people who live and work at the bottom of the canyon, is that he really cut the line. Um, and by that I mean not only was he the first person ever to navigate. Um, through the the set of 500 rapids that runs from um, uh, Green River, uh, Utah, or Green River, Wyoming, where he started out, um, all the way to the Virgin River just above Las Vegas. Not only was he the first person to navigate those rapids physically, but he also sort of cut the narrative in a way.
3: And we'll have Every to. Every uh, single
1: river story starts with John Wesley Powell.
0: We'll have to end it there. We're out of time, unfortunately, but uh, it maybe gives the people appetite to read the book. Uh, very fascinating tales and some history there, not only this adventure story. The Emerald Mile is the book. Kevin Fedarko is the author. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Thanks for uh, hearing this uh, interview again. We've revisited our conversation with Kevin Fedarko. His book, of course, is The Emerald Mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. And uh, we're doing this uh, on the occasion of his coming to Logan. Kevin Fedarko is coming to Logan next week, uh, Saturday, August 29th. He'll be giving a convocations talk on the USU campus at 930 in the morning at the D. Glenn Smith Spectrum on the USU campus. This is free and open to the public. Again, it's Saturday, August 29th, 9 30 in the morning. The D. Glenn Smith Spectrum on the USU campus, free and open to the public. It's a part of USU's annual Common Literature Experience and also a part of USU's 2015 Year of Water initiative. Information on the Common Literature Experience can be found at USU.edu slash connections And you can go to our website, upr.org, for information on USU's Year of Water. Thanks for listening.
3: Deseret News,
0: columnist Steve Eaton.
3: When you get old, lightning bolts go around your eyes. They don't shoot out at people. That would be cool. They just start flashing around your eyeball like you're suddenly discovering that you're actually some sort of android and you're starting to have a short circuit in your old age. Apparently everyone else knows this. Somehow you all kept it from me. If I get a rash on my knee or an ingrown toenail, my first assumption is that it's a brain tumor. I don't know why, but I figure it has to be a brain tumor. So you can imagine what I thought when one night I suddenly realized there were lightning bolts flashing in a circular motion around my right eye, followed by a splotch in my field of vision like I get on my glasses when I get too excited about drinking chocolate milk. I was sure this had to be a brain tumor. I have a friend who's an eye doctor, and he came to his office on his day off to examine me. It's a good thing he's a patient person who has giant colored charts of eyeballs in his office, because if he hadn't explained what his diagnosis was, I probably would have been even more alarmed. I might have thought my backside was going to fall off. The name of this non-brain tumor affliction is posterior vitreous detachment. Now, doesn't that sound like something that means your padded part will fall off if you celebrate victory with too much gusto? My doctor said that what was happening to my eye is common among old people, which is apparently what I'm becoming at 58. That brings me back to my original sticking point. Did you know this? How come everybody knew this and they've been keeping it from me? How come no one ever said to me, I guess I'm just getting old, my joints are sore, and I feel like I've got some posterior detachment going on? No one ever said that. It makes me wonder what else people are keeping from me. It's not like I'm clueless on life's mysteries. I figured out some important things early in life. You know how when your parents tell you that you can be anything you want to be? Lots of us believe that until we meet that incompetent boss who says he thinks you should be unemployed. When my mom told me that, I was quite excited and I gave it some serious thought. You want to be a drive-in movie screen, she said slowly. Yeah, 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 and I can see all the movies I want for free, I said cheerfully as if I had just decided on my major for college. You can't be a drive-in movie screen, she told me with that tone that made me think she wanted to return me to the manufacturer. I was quest but figured there must be exceptions to every rule. It was not long after that that I decided what I really wanted to be was a telephone pole. When she told me, I could never grow up to be a telephone pole. I began to realize it wasn't true that I could be anything I wanted to be. Yet I still believe in some silly things. For example, I believe in the president's State of the Union address. Did you hear that barbell say with hope to my wife? Regardless of whether it's a Democrat or Republican speaking, he says that we should rise above partisan politics and work together for the benefit of the country. This is awesome! Then she adopts that same tone my mother used to get, because apparently the possibility of our elected leaders working together for the benefit of the country is about as likely as me realizing my dream of becoming a telephone pole. So maybe I can't even believe in the things that are said in an official presidential dress. Well, I have more important things to think about. I now have lightning bolts in my eye. I guess that would explain why some old people don't like loud rock and roll, and why they insist on inside voices in the house. They just need to simplify and keep things quiet. They've got regular fireworks show going on in their heads, and they can't even talk about it for crying out loud. We should be nice to them. You should be nice to me. Yes, I know it's not that bad. This new lifelong affliction is excessively mild compared to some of the harsh things some of my friends already deal with. I have friends who listen to talk radio every day and probably won't be able to stop until they die. I just wish someone would have told me up front. Son... Always remember that you can be nearly anything you want to be as long as it's not a drive-in movie screen or a telephone pole or a nonpartisan senator. And no matter how good or bad your life goes, someday you can look forward to having lightning bolts in your eyes. Here, let me sprinkle some chocolate milk on your glasses. That will help you prepare for old age. This is Steve Eaton.
2: On the next Radio Lab, the story of a chimp who never got the chance to be a chimp. It's called Lucy Growing Up Human. She quickly learned to hold her own bottle. At two months, her eyes would focus. A chimpanzee daughter in a psychotherapist's family. At three months, she was trying to climb out of her crib to go to people. She was so responsive to being looked at, stroke. Tragic tales of species confusion on the next Radio Lab. Join us Saturday at noon on Utah public radio
0: there are career defining moments in all of our lives but not all of them involve powerful politicians i said you know i'm not feeling it and hillary clinton just lifted her face to me and she said and do what you feel chris i'm kai rizdal they also by the way don't normally involve red lipstick we'll tell you more next time on marketplace from 8 p.m tuesday
2: night at 6:30 on utah public radio What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPin. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, hd one Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.